Hi everyone and welcome to another Firms Consulting Podcast. Uh, we're going to stick in our theme uh, of discussing the findings from the consulting offer, which I think is quite important. So by now you've probably watched a few of the videos, you know, Felix, Samantha, Sanjeev, Rafik. Um, my advice is, you know, watch all of them because they're all following different cases. They have different development areas and I, and I do moderate or modulate my style to expose certain weakness. Sometimes I'm very tough with them, sometimes I'm very easy on them. I'm generally easy on Felix because she seems to respond well to that. And she, when I say respond well, not just she feels good because you can feel good and be an epic disaster in cases, but she actually improves when you're nicer to her. Um, and to be honest with some of the other candidates like Samantha, we never really figured out what style worked. We were nice with her at times and no improvement. We're tougher, no improvement, and it was more an issue of, I think, timing. The more time she had, she tended to do better, and the more mechanical the cases were. So, the point I want to discuss here is the principle of receiving feedback and what feedback means. So, the story goes something like this, right? We we received, well, I had a discussion with someone from a um, fairly well-known business school, and he was telling me how unhappy his friend was, a lady, because the firm couldn't give her any specific feedback on why they didn't hire her. They said she was great, there was nothing specifically bad, and therefore they didn't want to hire her. And she was quite upset. Now, she was actually angry because some of her friends received more specific feedback, and she felt she needed that, you know, one, two, three things that you needed to improve to get better. Now... I'm going to talk about what feedback means because I think it's completely misunderstood here. And you can see the way we give feedback to, you know, Felix, Samantha, Sanjeev and so on. Now the point I want to make here is that you notice at the beginning Felix gets a lot of feedback. As we progress she gets less and less and less and less in feedback until towards the end I can't give you any feedback because she's pretty much that good. I mean, if she had attended a McKinsey interview she would have passed. There's pretty much no doubt about that, you know confidence issue that could have come up as a problem but I think her confidence had grown up quite substantially and she's a very pleasant lady right easy to talk to um, good personality very positive warm personality you know things that you want in someone you're going to be working with 18 hours a day for like seven days a week over four months someone like Samantha you notice that we were giving we started with a lot of feedback but we started the feedback just started becoming bigger and bigger, sort of compounding. Because when we we, were, we wanted her to learn six things in session five, she didn't learn them. And then when we wanted to teach her six new things in session six, we had to give her feedback on the six things she didn't learn in session five, plus the six things she didn't learn in session six. By the time we went to session seven, we had to give her feedback on the six things she didn't learn in session five, six things she didn't learn in session six, and six things she didn't learn in session seven. So just sort of compounding and compounding and compounding. Now here's a very important observation about feedback that you need to keep in mind. If a firm can give you a specific reason why you didn't get the offer, that's a very bad sign in my opinion. Let me tell you why it's such a bad sign. Doing cases is not difficult. I'm not saying that because I want you to feel bad about your performance. I think a lot of people do cases badly because you get exposure to bad technique, right? And bad technique is why you do badly. It's not because you're dumb. I don't think anyone is dumb. They just are poorly taught. You know, you can if you're taught well, you'll always do well. So what's happening is that most people are poorly taught. 
they go into an interview and they get you know the firm says well you have to be more structured you uh you made a lot of you made two math mistakes and you have to be more concise and the person is so happy oh the firm gave me three things i need to fix if i just fix this i'll get the offer no when you get that specific feedback in an interview in my opinion you have a lot of development areas let me tell you why it's all about probability distributions here right think about how many people apply right i mean mckinsey and so on are interviewing 100 i don't know the exact numbers now because the firm's a lot larger than when I was a consultant, but they probably combined across those top three interviewing over 100,000 people per year. I would have, there's no doubt about it, right? Maybe even 200,000, maybe 300,000, but there's a lot of people, if you start interviews going through the screening process. Now, think about all those people who pass the final round. Now, pass the final round doesn't mean you got an offer. When you pass the final round, I'm just talking about cases. Think about all the people who are good enough on cases, right? So maybe about 1% of all those people are good enough in the final round. There's 3,000 people are good enough in the final round. Now, of those 3,000 people, right, about maybe 500 to 600 are going to be hired in that entire year. So you basically have to be in the top 18%, right? Now, what do you think separates the top 18% of the 3,000 that were so good to get an offer? Not a lot. Is, I'll tell you that right now. It's not like I, you know, when I was a partner, I'd sit there and say, oh, this person was slightly better on math, slightly faster. Now, you know, my advice is don't listen to recruiters when they give you advice at McKinsey and BCG because they don't make the final decision. It's always made by the partners. The partner is the one sitting there making the decision. The recruiter is giving you second-hand information, right? He, the recruiter may put you in for the interview, but they don't get you the offer. Um, and even then, the recruiter doesn't have much control in terms of getting you the interview. The recruiter collects your file and it goes to a screening committee and ultimately the partner has the final say. So, there's a very little difference between the top 18%. I mean, it's it's minuscule. In fact, the, the, the 3,000 and you have to be in the top 18% to get an offer, there's not a lot that's different between them. If you look at the person who has ranked, I mean, the firms don't rank them this way, but let's assume they were in the bottom 10% of the 3,000. They were between... 2,700 to rank 3,000. Are they materially different from the top 600? No. There's no material difference. It comes down to likability. Did the partner find you likable? Did the partner think you were confident? Confidence is a big thing with consulting firms. You know, we can overlook a lot of things provided you're confident. Not arrogant, but you know, supremely confident, centered from within. Someone who you know talks in a certain way, they sit in a certain way, they command respect in a certain way. They basically are not phased. You know, unflappable is the word I would use. And I'll come to this point in a few minutes. So, you have to, you have to have that centeredness now. When they're rejecting the other, you know, 2,400 people that didn't make the top 18%, what are they going to tell them? Hey, you know what? You were, you were wrong. Yeah, no, they didn't do anything wrong. So when someone doesn't get good feedback, when it's like the firm couldn't find anything wrong with you, you just didn't make the cut, it comes down a lot to chemistry. Now, people get upset because chemistry is, is, is intangible. You can't put it down. But let me tell you something. It's very tangible. In the sense that when I am speaking to someone in the first one minute, I know if they are material for McKinsey or BCG. Now, that may sound bizarre, but it's true. When you do our screening calls, first minute, I know this person's got the, the 
the right kind of mojo and they you know they centered they polished they accomplished and I remember there was a lady I spoke to once and she had a man's name and I remember I called I always thought she was a, a man when she was communicating with me I called her up and I told her uh, I want to speak to X and she said yeah that's me and I said, but I'm, but you, it's a man's name. I said, yeah. And then she said, yeah, that's why I have the name, so you'll remember me. And I really liked her, great personality, very centered, very confident, great way of speaking. And I could see immediately that was a person who had the leadership profile of a consulting firm, right? And, and I still think she has a leadership profile of a consulting firm. Those things are intangible. People don't want to hear they have an intangible development area because they find it impossible to fix, you know. It's very easy to improve your GMAT scores from 700 to 720. You can measure it, but on intangible things, you don't want to hear that. But the reality is that when you're in the top group, it comes down to intangible elements. I mean, think about Felix, right? I, I still recall Felix's initial screening interview. She was wearing this blue shirt, maybe this purple, the, the you know, Yale Conference Center may have distorted the colors, but I remember she was very confident about things. Um, she struck me as someone who knew what she wanted. Um, she was very articulate. You know, English wasn't her first language, but still very articulate, very polished. And in that first two to five minutes, I knew immediately, okay, Felix is going to be the breakout star in this, you know, in the season one. We just have to get her there. And you know, she's still going through things. She's obviously changed her. Uh, uh, application dates, you know, she's pushed it back to sort out some personal issues and so on, but she's going to be potentially a very powerful partner one day at McKinsey. So my point is this, when you get feedback that's so vague, now assuming the partner has thought about your feedback and the recruiters thought about your feedback, but when you told that, you know what, they can't give you a specific reason, you shouldn't be unhappy about it. But what you should focus on is the intangible side because there's an intangible element there on why you didn't get the offer. It's about your confidence, your poise, things you may have said. Could be your anxiety levels in the interview. Anxiety levels do play up. Could have been the fact that the interviewer thought you were too aggressive. There's a difference between being assertive versus being aggressive. So when you get non-specific feedback, because the interviewer couldn't give you specific feedback, that's something you should be proud of because you could handle the material, but it means you have to focus on the intangibles. Now, there are times when people just don't want to give you feedback. That's a different issue. If someone doesn't want to give you feedback, but you there is you know, specific things you need to improve, that's different. But if someone wants to give you feedback and there's nothing to give you, then I think you did a good job. Now, if you get specific feedback, you're not in the top 3,000. You're in the top 5,000. You're in the top 10,000. You're probably not in the top 50,000 to 100,000 people because that's how close the performance is. That when you're getting, if you can get one piece of specific tangible feedback, like your math was weak, oh my God, you're not in the top 100,000. I can tell you that right now. So when you're going for these interviews and you're not getting specific feedback, the partner's telling you, you did everything right, you just, you know, is just a competitive year. I would say what you've got to focus on is not the cases, but the communication and poise and presence. Now, that's not easy to do. And that's not the purpose of this podcast to discuss that and this video, you know, any videos we have, we will probably look at them in the later points. But I think you definitely want to think very carefully about how to read your feedback. You know, coming back to this example from this 
a colleague was telling me about a lady in his class. She should not have been disappointed with the firm. She should have been quite happy knowing that she had what it takes. But on the other hand, knowing that she had some intangible elements she needed to fix and rather being angry about not getting good feedback, she should actually start a process of thinking very carefully about how she comes across to people. Now, aggression is not a bad thing provided you can control it. Assertiveness is obviously favored over aggression because aggression is uncontrollable. Assertiveness is more like um, controlled aggression. But the intangible elements are, are supremely important. The intangible elements is what hooks the interview at the beginning of the interview. And then the interviewer likes you and then he wants you to pass the cases and do well and so on. But I, I'll tell you now, the intangible elements count for more than the tangible elements. Um, so don't neglect them. So when you get this non-specific feedback and they say they have nothing to tell you, focus on the intangibles. But when you're getting specific feedback on that, on one hand, I don't want people to listen to this podcast and start being disappointed that they have a long way to go. But the reality is when you get such specific feedback, it's not a good sign. It's actually a very bad sign. Because you should be at the point where, even if you're at the point where they can't tell you what's wrong, they still can't give you the offer. So imagine if you're at the point whereby they can tell you what's wrong. They obviously are not going to you know, give you the offer. But they may re-interview you again, but you want to be at the point whereby you're not getting feedback. Now, it's difficult to, to practice this because your colleagues and even consultants at a junior level, I mean, basically anyone below engagement managers at a relatively junior level, in our opinion, because they don't have that ability to, to suss out the, the key elements that are required. But you, wanna, you want to practice with enough people and make a rolling list of where you are getting bad feedback. Now, the one mistake I see many people making when they get feedback like you're too slow is they practice more. Don't practice more when you get negative feedback. First, isolate the problem and try to fix it and then practice more. If you constantly practice with a bad technique, you just actually become better at the bad technique, which is very counterintuitive. So you don't actually improve it, you become worse at it. So rather than practicing, you've got to step aside and fix the problem you know the example i use with people is always you know formula one racing you know when a when a car is broken you, you don't leave it on the circuit you pull it out of the race put it into a pit lane you fix the problem and then you send it out you know the driver is not going to become better and the car is not going to become better just by making it pushing it harder the same thing with cases you know You've got to pull yourself out of the practicing sessions, fix the problem, and then put yourself out there. Because if you just constantly practice the bad technique, you reinforce the bad technique. So, on the flip side, if you're getting non-specific feedback, badge of honor, focus on the intangibles. If you're getting very specific feedback, not a good sign, and you have to... I think you have a lot of work to do. If you are trying to fix those problems when you're getting specific feedback... Don't just practice, but because when you're practicing, you're implicitly saying, well, by practicing more, maybe I'll be exposed to the right way of doing it. But that's not a controlled way of fixing a problem. You've got to set aside some time and understand what is the mechanics. Why are you making those mistakes? How do you avoid it? Don't just jump in there and say, oh, I'll fix it over time, because that's what people do. It's a kind of a hit and miss approach. And you know, people say you've got to practice 70 hours of cases, 80 hours of cases, 90. And I think that's ridiculous, actually. You know, if you do cases the right way, you don't have to practice so many cases. You maybe have to do, I would say, anywhere from 18 to 20 hours, maybe, even less at times. I mean, we've had people who only practice maybe four hours with us. And again, it's all about the right kind of lesson. You have to be open-minded and listen to what is being said and follow it. Now, you can you can watch as many videos as you want, but if you're not going to follow the advice, it doesn't matter how many you watch at the end of the day. So... 
learning becomes a quite an important step when you trying to fix these problems because there's two stages there one is getting access to the right material to, to know what to do and the next one is actually following it and they're completely different and you have to focus on them as always you know if you have any comments type them up or share the podcast with colleagues to see what their feedback is